This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. And good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Well, we're going to get some reaction to the announcement in St. Lawrence earlier today in just a moment. But first, I want to start with, um, is the weather getting you down? (laughs) That's a rhetorical question, but I know um, an awful lot of people who are feeling it. It's, uh, It's been a relentless period of RDF, and while that's relatively common in Newfoundland and Labrador, especially along coastal regions. Uh, It is in stark contrast to some of what we're seeing in other parts of the country. Well, David Neal, meteorologist with the Environment Canada Weather Office in Gander, joins me now. Hello, David. Hello, how are you today? Good. Any any break in in sight for this uh, RDF we've been having? Well, uh, luckily, it looks like we will have a little bit of a brief reprieve there uh, coming uh, coming up tomorrow. Looks like uh, looks like things should uh, should break out a little bit. Start to see a little bit of sun, and uh, even uh, uh, for a few areas, uh, looking to see uh, some of those uh, temperatures kind of creep up to to even getting around the 20 mark. So uh, so yeah, a, a brief. Uh, a brief break, a brief time to to hopefully get outside and enjoy some sun uh, tomorrow. Oh, you're teasing now when you say uh, the 20 degree mark. I mean, we've barely seen double digits in many areas. Yes, absolutely, and especially you go from the really the northern Avalon and even up through uh, really up along uh, northeastern central Newfoundland. It's uh, uh, certainly been we've been stuck in this bit of a pattern of uh, a lot of northerly winds, uh, which uh, have been quite uh, quite chilly. Uh, a lot of areas uh, certainly having some struggles trying to get to that double digit mark. So uh, won't won't necessarily be good news for everyone. There'll be some uh, some coastal areas that uh, uh, that will likely see temperatures still quite cool tomorrow but at least uh, we'll get a little bit of sun there and uh, a few areas uh, we'll see some uh, some warmer temperatures so will we ever break that 20 degree mark i mean are we reaching some kind of horrible record territory here now uh, well, in terms of records, uh, um, not really. Uh, haven't really looked too far ahead into that at this point. But uh, as it, uh, it, it can certainly talk to uh, uh, what uh, really what a normal June uh, should kind of look like, and and we certainly haven't seen that in the in the St. John's area, and uh, that's uh, I'm sure uh, uh, quite obvious to a lot of people. But just to put it into context uh, a little bit, uh, we're seeing uh, temperatures that are uh, that are quite a bit below uh, below the normal. Uh, just to put it in perspective, normally the the, the uh, average temperature in St. John's in, in June is just shy of 11 degrees, and what we've seen so far uh, in terms of our mean, the mean temperature in the area uh, has been uh, under under eight degrees. So certainly been a very cool period, and uh, along with that cool uh, those cooler temperatures, uh, certainly uh, seen some wetter conditions as well. And again, just kind of want to put this in perspective a little bit uh, for the month of June. Uh, uh, St. John's normally picks up uh, just over 97 millimeters of precipitation for the entire month of June. Uh, where we stand right now, we're actually just shy of 97 millimeters, which pretty much is a normal June, and we're not quite halfway through. So it's certainly been a, a very cold, wet uh, period uh, to start uh, uh, to start the month. And did I hear right in the forecast when Jolene was just giving it out that we have a risk of frost? Yep, 
that's uh, that's certainly uh, yeah we're carrying that in the forecast here for tonight expecting some gradual clearing so we'll see some partial clearing through the night tonight uh, so yeah those temperatures are going to get down there with uh, uh, winds that will calm partial clearing so we could see some frost and actually we're uh, carrying some frost advisories uh, over uh, much of uh, much of central Newfoundland and uh, as well as parts of the south uh, and into the northern peninsula as well so uh, still still some some chilly uh, chilly temperatures ahead. Now you mentioned that we've had this consistent northerly flow over the last little while but what's going on why why are we getting that and and you know provinces in very relative close proximity Nova Scotia and Quebec for instance are warm and dry uh, well, what we've seen is uh, we've had a, an area of high pressure that's been kind of sticking around to our north, and we've had a couple of systems that have gone through that have uh, really made those, uh, turn the wind direction generally, for the most part, some form of northerly. So we've uh, had anywhere from northeast to northwest winds, which for any areas across northeastern Newfoundland, and then, yes, of course, getting into the northern Avalon, that uh, that will bring some, uh, some cooler temperatures for sure. Uh, so that's kind of what we've been seeing. Haven't necessarily seen that as much with the, uh, in the Maritimes. Uh, seeing some some warmer temperatures uh, in, in those areas, uh, but uh, certainly uh, for for us here in Newfoundland, it's not uh, it's not a much of a uh, uh, not, not much of a, a positive development for us. Now that said, it does, uh, that's not to say the entire province has been uh, overly cold. As you parts of Labrador have been quite warm. Just uh, looking here, Wabush right now is at uh, 25 degrees and sunny. So it's, uh, there are some nicer areas of the province where conditions are a little bit better uh western newfoundland seeing some warmer temperatures here today as well uh but yeah anywhere across the northeast and, and parts of the east coast just haven't quite been as fortunate so far so go west if you want to see some better temperatures northwest Head head west head, head yeah head uh, inland that's uh, more to the mainland that's for sure but yeah it's uh, uh, even uh, looking for tomorrow uh, seeing some uh, some mid twenties possible in parts of western Newfoundland so uh, at least at the very minimum we'll see uh, tomorrow should be a, a pretty good day uh, so that should hopefully uh, hopefully bring in some more positive uh, positive vibes for uh, for this month that's for sure for sure and I noticed that you're sticking with tomorrow and you're not necessarily talking about the days following because we're going back to this pattern are we not I'm, I'm trying to i'm trying to keep it as positive <laughs> as possible <laughs> um yeah it looks like uh once we have this uh this little little reprieve you know uh, th- uh, th- thursday actually uh, right now doesn't look too, too bad it won't be quite as uh won't be quite as nice as tomorrow but uh uh, seeing some some more cloud move in uh, and uh, temperatures will will be a bit on the cooler side again. Uh, but then as we get into into Friday, uh, there's been a bit of uncertainty as to um, when this next system comes in. But we're starting to, we're starting to see a little bit more agreement that another system is going to form uh, and is going to approach uh, approach eastern Newfoundland uh, into into Friday and that could bring another period of, uh, of wet conditions to uh, to much of uh, much of the eastern portion and, and even into parts of central as well uh, really through the day Friday and uh, possibly lingering again into into a portion of the weekend for a few areas so Unfortunately, as 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 much as uh, like to like to say that uh, this uh, this this 
time of, uh, of nicer weather that's going to come in tomorrow is going to linger. It's, uh, it's unfortunately not going to stick around for too long. I can hear all the lawnmowers tomorrow now as we speak. Uh, David Neal, really appreciate your time. Not a problem. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so there you have it. Uh, a little bit of a reprieve tomorrow, possibly some temperatures in the 20s, especially as you for head further west on the island. And, uh, and then back to this. Yeah, you know what's a tease when you go to the stores and they're all selling those hanging baskets and you know darn well that you're not going to, if you <laughs> put them out, it's going to be frost yeah, on them. so I've got them in the hallway. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Stepping over Walking them. Walking around them. Yeah. Fun times. <laughs> they're nice in the house, though. I mean, they don't last long, but there you have it. <laughs> anyway, there you have it. Um... RDF. Uh, when we come back, we're going to get uh, some reaction to the big announcement in St. Lawrence this morning. Well, when, this is News Talk on VOCM. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. And we're back. Well, Singapore registered Floresbar Holdings PTE Limited is the new owner of the St. Lawrence Floresbar Mine. The Supreme Court of Newfoundland and Labrador approved the sale of Canada Floresbar Inc. and its mine in St. Lawrence on Tuesday, June the 6th, and the $25 million sale closed today. The provincial government says the buyer is a subsidiary of AMED Funds, a group with uh, private equity funds of more than $1.4 billion U.S. in assets in its management now. That, that the sale is complete. The new owner can begin the process of restarting the idled mine. Well, St. Lawrence Mayor Kevin Pittman joins me now. Hi, Kevin Pittman. Good day. So uh, the announcement was made in uh, St. Lawrence this morning regarding um, the Singapore Registered Floresbar Holdings, PTE Limited, the new owner of the St. Lawrence Floresbar Mine. Uh, what's your response to it all? Uh, seemed uh, we had a, a great uh, announcement today. Uh, we're on a little bit of a high here now. The uh, the announcement is very positive. Uh, the new ownership seems to be very committed to uh, developing the mine, the uh, the Blue Beach site for for transportation, and getting our workers uh, back to work. You know, within the, within a reasonable time frame. Were there uh, periods during this lengthy process where you were starting to feel less optimistic? Sure, there were. <laughs> There's always times when things, uh, especially when the when the uh, first, uh, I guess the first uh, group that was uh, named didn't come up with the money, and the uh, and we went back to square one again. Certainly got to a point where why we were a little frustrated. Uh, but I mean, we've been working through through this process for almost a year now, and. Uh, and it seems like we were coming in on the positive end of it right now. What do we know about this company and its plans? Have you been talking to uh, Mr. De Bruin? We had uh, Mr. De Bruin here from uh, Ahmed Funds, uh, and the actual ownership group I think is Clarity Strategic Investments. Uh, so there was two gentlemen here from uh, from Clarity uh, Strategic Investments as well. Uh, Mr. Just a second, I get their names. Uh, Mr. Rahul Suri. And Mr. Willem, uh, Willem Jacobs, uh, who's working with the mine uh, on the mining side of it, I do believe. But Mr. Suri is the uh, managing part partner of, and the founder of Clarity Strategic Investments. 
So is there any indication of when they might get things going? Uh, it looks like there's a, a bunch of contingencies involved here, but uh, any idea when, when it might um, actually start rolling and people might get hired? Uh, talking to Mr. DeBruin uh, this afternoon following the uh, announcements, uh, he feels right now there's a little bit of ge geology work to be done and some pits to be cleared and that kind of thing. Uh, however, he, he wouldn't commit to a time frame, but he said he is hoping that he would, they would be in production uh, sometime in November. As soon as that? Yeah, that's his plan. So that's got to be encouraging for people who've been, you know, um, people in St. Lawrence and surrounding area who've been, you know, sort of on tender hooks for quite a while now. Oh, certainly is. Uh, he actually, someone asked him at the end of the announcement uh, when people could not be not start knocking on his door, and he said within a few weeks. So all that's positive news. You know, it's uh, it sounds really good now. That being said, to be honest, we've heard this before, <laughs> as you're aware, uh, but uh, this sounds like we're, uh, you know, a roller coaster ride is on the upswing right now. So what, I mean, what do you know about the St. Lawrence mine? What kind of potential is there from your perspective? Uh, from now, I mean, in looking at the community, I mean, people who have lived here all their lives in St. Lawrence uh, tell us the whole town's built on floor spar. Uh, the uh, mining people we had here today say the, the vast resource here is basically untouched. There's a lot more mineral here than uh, than is uh, was suspected, and the grade of floor spar is 97% uh, uh, pure. So I mean, that's the highest grade floor spar in the world. And uh, today they they reaffirmed that that fact that uh, we probably had the five highest grade floor spar in the world, and that's something that's on the market now, and being. Uh, ever more in demand especially with the uh with electric vehicles floor spire apparently is is one of the critical minerals that's now being needed to make the uh, batteries for for uh electric vehicles it's it's very much in demand so as you indicated you know you've been down this road a few times now <laughs> uh the town of st lawrence uh, what do you suppose it has you know prevented um the mine and the operation there from really succeeding uh, two of the biggest things I think that's kept St. Lawrence from uh, – actually, three of the biggest things that kept St. Lawrence from being the world leader in floor spire. Number one was uh, people were buying cheaper floor spire from other countries, not as high a grade as, as St. Lawrence's floor spire, so therefore they were getting it cheaper from other countries early on in the process. Now, uh, now with the, you know, with the environmental concerns now, with uh, less and less arsenic being permitted within the floor spar grade, St. Lawrence being 97% pure is uh, is certainly being very much in demand because of its low arsenic content. Uh, the other problems that we've had, number one, has been transportation. Uh, uh, you know, we've been, even in the last mining company, we were trucking over to Marystown, and this company today reaffirmed the commitment to v developing Blue Beach, which uh, is a transshipment port. So that means they're looking at uh, eventually shipping out of here. And uh, there's been some management issues over the years, you know. So hopefully we were putting those uh, behind us and going forward. 
So some stars appear to be aligning here. Do you think the transportation issues in particular can be addressed? You and I have spoken about this before. Well, Mr. De Bruin, uh, in his uh, talk today, uh, addressed it specifically that they had plans to develop Blue Beach as their as a uh, as a shipment facility. So they they certainly are planning to ship out of St. Lawrence and not have to to uh, transport it to Marystown by truck. Well, Kevin, we'll be watching this uh, story unfold very closely as the uh, weeks and days and months uh, transpire. I really appreciate your time. Thanks. Okay. And that is uh, St. Lawrence Mayor Kevin Pittman. Well, Claudette, I was devastated to hear this. Say it ain't so. That was fun. Have it you ever was. won anything? Have you? Do you I don't know. I no. never asked you. Are you a contest person? Not really. Right. I'm, did you? Wait a minute. You did go on prices, right? Years. I did years and years ago, and I didn't win yeah. anything. What did Barker say to you? He said, if you'd stop looking at yourself in the monitor, you might win something. <laughs> <laughs> but I wasn't looking at myself. I was looking at my friend yeah. who was in yeah. the audience, yeah. and I didn't turn around. You're going to question Bob Barker on national television. No. Well, I mean, two American institutions. Who do you pick? I don't know. Uh, we'll see you next time. So long. Bye-bye. Well, that's two American institutions, and you could say North American institutions because, uh, you know, all of Canada, Newfoundland and Labrador in particular, are big fans of Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune. And that was Pat Sajak and Vanna White, uh, two institutions themselves. And Pat Sajak is finally going to retire. retire. Yeah, so they're going to do the season together, which starts in September, and I guess they're ending in 2024. But... I'm just wondering what is going to happen because Vanna, you know, feels that people will want to see the two of them. So what do you do? They've been working together 40, 40 plus years, and then all of a sudden one of them goes. You know, it'll be interesting dynamic to find out what will happen or who will replace him. I'd like to see a bit of role reversal. I'd like to see a man turn over the letters and the woman host. <laughs> uh, well, maybe, you never know. Maybe yeah. uh, Vanna's got her uh, sights set on the uh, hosting position there. But uh, you're right. They're a team. They've been a team for, you know, most of our lives. Yeah, uh, since the early 1980s together. Yeah, they've been one is it they started yeah, there yeah, together? Yeah, they did, uh, they started with Chuck Woolery before I that. I can't remember a time when Wheel of Fortune wasn't hosted by, by the two of them and, and there is something about that hey they're about having the two of them just the vibe yeah. and and the i guess the charisma or the relationship between the two of them and there's something too about constancy especially in this ah, time and yes. of our lives you know what i mean like everything changes so rapidly that's something nice about yeah. that constancy well, but uh, we don't like change <laughs> but Sometimes. you know he's smooth and he knows how to do it and mm -hmm. he always boosts people up and i know that you know youtube is full of videos showing otherwise the opposite, but th yeah. that's that's the kind of thing that you know the internet loves but um you know overall he's uh, he's an institution and uh, it's going to be strange i it don't is. know if i'll be watching it as closely although you know when um poor um, um oh my gosh Oh, uh, Maya, are you talking about Jeopardy now? Yes, or Jeopardy. Alex Trebek. Alex Trebek, yeah. when he passed away, I mean, who could imagine yeah. Jeopardy without Alex Trebek? And yet, Ken Jennings and Maya Bialik are doing a great job. They are. Um, yeah, but still, I bet you, you know, people are still thinking, oh, I love Alex. Yeah. Or Alex, sorry. But uh, yeah. um, uh, Patch Sajak's daughter is a part of the yeah. show. Hey? Yeah, Maggie. Yeah. So it will be interesting to know if well, she'll take more you know, of a... 
formal role. Right. Could be paving the way to a little mm-hmm. dynasty there. Uh, anyway, uh, lots of fans in this province, that's for sure. For sure. <laughs> and when I heard you were the one that told me about it, Audit oh, Burns. earlier. <laughs> uh, so there you go. Um, thanks for ruining my day. Uh, <laughs> um, when we come back, there's there'll be plenty of action in the capital city's east end. And it'll be on the ice. Um, we'll tell you why and how when we come back right after this. This is News Talk on VOCM. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Well, the Avalon Arena Association, that's the not-for-profit that operates twin rinks in the capital city, has partnered with Capital Subaru to create a custom-sized ice rink in the old Action Building in St. John's. And a lot of people, that's one of a number of businesses uh, lately that people have been wondering what's going to go in there. Uh, the building will be called the Capital Subaru Arena and will address issues around limited ice availability and create some new community space. Associate, Association Executive Director Stephen Haggerty says the new ice surface measures 145 by 65 feet, which is the recommended size for uh, ice size for younger athletes. Haggerty spoke to reporters, including VOCM's Richard Duggan this afternoon. This is a our brand new rink, ready to be open hopefully sometime for next ice season. It's a custom size ice rink. It's a one 145 by 65, designed for younger younger athletes. It's, it's not different. It's needed. Uh, ice time is at a premium, especially on the Northeast Avalon. Uh, the demand is skyrocketing. Um, it's different. It's custom size. Uh, Young kids play basketball on smaller nets. They play baseball on smaller fields. Uh, hockey does not have the equivalent of that. Uh, so that was our vision, was making something a bit more custom-sized, uh, smaller for the younger athletes to use. Anything from uh, U9 and below be from Hockey Canada's point of view. Uh, skaters learn to skate programs, not just hockey, right? The younger kids in general. So the release mentions that uh, this arena will be uh, will have uh, accessibility features for young players, older players, whoever yep. wants to use it. Uh, explain some of those features to us. Uh, so the building is fully accessible. It's wheelchair accessible, elevator access. The ice surface, there'll be access on and off the ice via wheelchair ramps. Uh, the boards will be, the ice surface leading on and off the rink is fully flush. So anyone with disabilities can get on and off to the benches. The benches are going to be changed out to clear glass, so for sledge and other multi-sport uses. Exercise and method well-being go hand in hand, I think. A new facility, we, our, our association's in the, in the, trying to provide facilities for the region. Uh, we are not-for-profit, so we do this, trying to, expanding our footprint uh, is much needed, and the more people we can serve, more people we can help, uh, that's kind of our goal, and and more people getting physical activity, hopefully, relates to more people being mentally. Uh, we've started planning for this about a number of years ago at the association. Uh, this facility came on the market late last year, early December. Uh, so what we see today actually started in early December to be finished right as it is right now. Uh, it's a real good ch- sense of achievement because, like I said, the association, which is our volunteer board, we've been at this... The association's been around since 1974, uh, operating twin rinks since 1974, and they had a vision for the last number of years to expand, and now it feels really good to see it come to fruition. 
Uh, it played out from December this year to uh, you know now, really. Um, we've bought the property from Mr. Andrew King, who has been a really good supporter and really helped us to, to reach our goals. Did you look at it? Uh, was there were ever any talks about adding to the Twin Rigs itself, or is that just not feasible with the land that's there? Uh, we've, we've talked about it. We've done a number of feasibility studies. Um, adding to the land we have issues with parking as it is adding to the land would, would take away from our parking uh, this was much more when this property became available this was a much more better fit for our needs uh, it's open to every association uh, like Twin Rinks we serve multiple associations from Prince Wales Skating Club St. John's Minor High School uh, it will be opened up uh, to any association who needing ice time what's left to do here what's left to do uh, there is some physical work the dress rooms need to be worked up uh, we need a Zamboni area. That's pretty much it, and we'd be, you know, that's the last two pieces of major infrastructure that need to be done for reopen. Um, then it's your details like painting your ice and, and a bit of what? Score clock. A score clock, yes, is on order and stuff. A score clock. How cool is that? Well, that is the executive director of the Avalon Arena Association, which operates twin rinks in the capital city. I'm well familiar with twin rinks, and they're um, working on this capital Subaru Arena. And uh, Richard Duggan was down there today and had a, a look at this new facility. What's it like? It is First of all, extremely cold, as you would expect a hockey <laughs> facility to be, especially on a day like today in St. John's. Um, but it was, it, it's really, uh, I, I guess you'd call it big, like like lots of space in there. I was wondering, when I first heard that they were going to do this project at the old Action Building, I had been inside of Action um, a couple of like times. Like a lot of us have been. Yeah. And so I was, I was trying to think, like, how are they going to put a, a hockey rink or a skating surface in there and so I didn't quite know how it was going to look when I walk in but you know you go in through the doors and through the main doors and it's just boom right there and so um you know, there's still a fair bit of work being done there right now, I guess, to get it up and uh, up and going for the fall. Um, but yeah, big, spacious. I got to get that nice overhead look because I went up a big flight of stairs, which if I remember correctly, used to go up to uh, party rooms in the old action building. Um, so I went up there and kind of got like the overhead shot looking down at the ice. It's going to be, uh, I think, quite a nice facility when, when all is said and done. And I think definitely needed for St. John's in the area because aside from Jack Byrne, which is in Torbay, I don't think there is anything like this in St. John's in the East End anyway. I don't think so. So um, definitely a, a welcome addition. And uh, like he mentioned, there's... Um Lots of issues right now in terms of getting ice time and ice availability, so this will certainly add to that. And no doubt for uh, young kids who like to play hockey, such as your son, um, you know, it certainly will be welcome news, no doubt. Oh, very exciting uh, indeed. And we, uh, we're still awaiting more news on the possibility of, a, of an ice rink in the West End, but that's a story for another day. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, um, thanks for this, uh, Richard. I know... <laughs> You were pretty cold when you came back. You actually did that news conference, Center Ice, is that we, correct? Yeah, we did that Center Ice. So we were getting ready to set up, and of course, the you know, the TV cameras were there, and they were like, well, what, what would be the coolest shot to do? And they said, well, let's just go out onto the ice. So first time I've ever done a, a scrum or an interview on Center Ice, which was... Um, pretty cool not as slippery as i thought it was going to be thankfully because i think uh 
it, it would be something else if you know you heard that audio and then you hear just a big thud and that's that's me falling Richard over Duggan going down <laughs> <laughs> um appreciate this thanks thank you very much linda that's uh, vocm's richard duggan uh, not reporting from center ice but he was there earlier today talking about this new ice uh surface in the east end capital subaru arena in the old action building and i think a lot of us claudette were wondering what was going to go in there when action pulled out yeah. because that was a big loss it was I was, you know, very sad because you'd see the pleas as well from the owners, you know, looking for uh, mm. local support at the time for action. COVID. Uh, exactly. Did that to so many businesses. Uh, but how wonderful for it to be uh, what it has turned into now. I'm, I'm thinking that's going to be there for years to come, especially with the need for ice time. Everyone's trying to get ice time. Yeah, absolutely. And then mm. you've got uh, people who are in rec leagues and that sort of thing being relegated to like 11 o'clock at night. Right. The timing. You're, yeah. That's a great point point yeah so maybe they would have more respectable times that's going to be huge for kids yeah for sure for sure anyway very interesting indeed when we come back after the break an exciting fossil find in conception bay north a lot of people talking about this uh we're going to hear more coming up in just a few moments this is news talk on vocm every saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin the cabin party with brian o'connell saturday night starting at 7 p.m on vocm and we're back. Well, it's a discovery that's grabbed the attention of fossil enthusiasts and scientists alike. A fossil bed dating back some 560 million years, that's younger than mistaken point, but still solidly in the Idiacran period, uh, when some of the first complex life forms started to emerge, has been found in an area near Upper Island Cove. Professor Duncan McElroy with the Memorial University Department of Earth Sciences joins me now. Hi, Duncan. Hi. So you uh, made a trip out to Upper Island Cove. Not your first trip, I know. Uh, but what uh, what is drawing your attention this time around? Uh, we found some amazing fossils at the, at the Upper Island Cove, or close to Upper Island Cove, anyway. Tell us a little bit about these uh, fossils. How were they found, and what are they? So we uh, they were found by uh, somebody... Uh, in their backyard, in, as in uh, sort of in the fields behind their, their home, basically. Um, there was a storm and they were looking for some water for their garden and they, they noticed that there was a spring and so they followed the water up to the uh, up to where it came out of the rock and, and found some fossils on the small part of the surface that had been exposed by the storm. Now, uh, fossils not unusual here in Newfoundland and Labrador, especially this sort of edge of the uh, of the province. But uh, what makes these so different? So the, the fossils are spectacular, for one thing. They're, they're really big. Um, this is a, a completely new um, exposure, and it's inland as well, which is a little bit unusual. Mostly what we see is around the coast, and it's been quite well explored, as you say. Um, so something that's completely new, obviously, if it's completely new, it might have completely new things. So it's... Um, and particularly where the first fossils that were seen were, were so beautiful, um, it was uh, it was really quite exciting to you know get the opportunity to to see what's underneath the rest of the turf, basically. So, what are they? Are they plants? Are they creatures? Are they a combination? Or <laughs> if you know what yeah, I'm trying to say, what makes a, them special? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a that's a good question. Um, and the answer is nobody really knows. Um, there's something a little bit more simple than a jellyfish, and a little bit simple more more simple than a sponge. So most likely an ancestor of animals. And what would they have looked like in life? 
So the, the fossil that were, was found by the Coombs family um, was shaped a little bit like a, a leaf or a, or a feather. It's got little branches that come off the side to make it into the, the, the feather shape. Uh, and each of those branches is made out of branches, and each of those branches are made out of branches as well. So it's like a fractal um, organization, which looks a bit like um, a bit like a quilt or a, a lilo or something like that. And would this so thing there, there have been free-moving or, or anchored? No, these were these were stuck on the seafloor. Wherever they settled in life was where they spent the whole of their lives. So that movement is something that's very much an animal trait. Uh, and these things couldn't move. Basically, wherever they settled, they had to stay for the rest of their lives. Right, because I've seen a picture, and it looks like you can see that that location where that was, you know, adhered to the the floor, the seafloor. Yes, they have they have a hold fast, so a little bit like um, like kelp have a hold fast. So some of them some of them were erect in the water columns, some of them lay lay along the seafloor, but they wherever they started growing from, there's a, there's a little disc. Yeah, that's right. So is this a new species, or does it require further investigation? So the, so the first one that was found is, is a thing called Charnia that's well known from the United Kingdom, so that's been known for about 60 years now. Um, but there's lots and lots of other things on the surface. So as we excavated uh, last Friday, actually, we found literally hundreds of fossils. The whole surface that we exposed, and we exposed uh, about 10 meters squared, was absolutely covered in fossils. So some of those things I can't put names on as yet. Maybe, maybe there are names that are established for them, but... Uh, Likely as not, there's probably several new fossils to be um, to be named, basically. Yeah. So this is a bonanza. Yes, it's, it's a really unique opportunity. I mean, we don't even know how big the surface is yet. We haven't reached the edges of it. Um, and the more we ex- excavate, the, the more likely we are to find something different and new. So it's really very exciting. So I'm assuming then if this was exposed by a tree that had uh, fallen over and, the, you know, I can picture the the, the turf coming up with the... With the um, Roots, uh, it would have been relatively close to the surface, no? Yeah, so it's um, it's a well, it, it varies. Uh, so some of some of it's just got a little bit of sphagnum moss on the surface. Some of it's got soil underneath as well. So we the bit that was exposed was only had a little bit of moss growing on it, so that was easy to to expose. But as we got away from there, we found it was basically a foot down underneath soil, so it started slowing down quite a lot. And is Upper Island Cove known for these types of discoveries? Uh, Upper Island Cove is very well known. So this isn't actually an Upper Island Cove. It's somewhere near. It's a secret site. Um, but Upper Island Cove itself is very well known. There's, there's a, an outcrop on the beach there. There's, there's an interpretive sign um, and a, a sign to say that their fossils are protected. But there's beautiful, beautiful fossils in Upper Island Cove. Yeah. And how old are we talking? How far back in time are we going? So these are a little bit younger than the famous mistaken point fossils. They're about probably about 560 million years, but we don't really know because um, we can get dates out of the volcanic ashes, uh, but there's been, not been any volcanic ashes that have been dated from the Upper Island Cove kind of area, Conception Bay North, I guess. So this would be a similar scenario, I'm guessing, that uh, these creatures died uh, because of um, being covered by volcanic debris? Yeah, I mean, if you if you can't move, then being covered in volcanic debris is probably pretty pretty much terminal for you. You can't move out of the way. You can't burrow your way out of it. Basically, they got smothered by the ash, yeah. And preserved. And preserved for, for 560 million years until the Coombs walked out their back garden and uh, found this, these fossils. And called Duncan McElroy. 
Yeah, well, actually, they, so they, they posted up on the, on the Facebook group and it was picked up by um, Ben Rideout, who's um, a friend of ours who's been working as an amateur geologist who's been collecting fossils in the area for, for lots of years in, the, in the, the younger Cambrian rocks, so trilobites. And he started being interested in the Ediacaran, and so he spotted it on the, a Facebook group that he runs called Newfound Fossils, as did my graduate students. And so they were, yeah, they, they were excited by it, shared it with me, and we've sort of developed a plan from there, basically. So this is garnering great attention here, of course. Is it getting attention anywhere else? Like, are others watching this and say, hey, wait a minute, what's going on over there? <laughs> I imagine they are, yeah, uh, particularly where it's on private land. So uh, other people basically can't get access to it. So they'll have to wait and see as we as we start to develop develop it. So basically it needs to be excavated, cleaned. The fossils need to be described. They need to be scanned, uh, replicas made. So this is going to be a long process by the time uh, all the fossils are actually described and shared with the rest of the world. So you're and, getting a, a sneak preview, basically. And in terms of the rest of the world, are they paying attention now and uh, wanting to hear and learn more? Yeah, I mean, sites of, with lots and lots of Ediacaran fossils on it are very rare on the, on the global scale. Um, so a site like this, I mean, we don't even know how big it could be. It could, it could rival Mistaken Point in terms of its size. Um, so, yeah, I mean, people will be very, very interested, you know, having assemblages of these very early animal-like life forms living together is really important. And so the more examples we have of that, uh, the better, basically, to try to understand what they actually were. Duncan McIlroy, I really appreciate your time uh, this afternoon. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. So there you go. Uh, Claudette, you don't know what you're going to find in your backyard. 560 million years old fossils. And it took a tree being uprooted for the family, the Coombs family, to be able to uh, find that. So they've been walking over that for a long, long time. Just and imagine. I can't. I think that's an amazing discovery for him to say, though, that it's more important, could be more important than mistaken point. That's a big That is mind-blowing. statement. Yeah. And hundreds and hundreds of fossils there. Yeah. Yeah, and so I he I think he mentioned something about how it could be, an, I don't know if he said an animal organism or not, but I remember the fern-shaped um, mm -hmm. uh, piece because I saw a picture of it. But uh, gosh, it would be really interesting. And they might even have to name new fossils. Yeah, just imagine. Coombs. Uh, yes, it should be named after yeah. whoever, it, uh, whoever originally found it, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Do you get to say it with an Upper Island Cove accent is the question I <laughs> <Yes>. want to know. <laughs> Having lots of friends in Upper Island Cove, uh, I say that warmly. Um, yes, yeah, just fascinating stuff. And to know that, you know, it's not dinosaurs. I know they're the big money mm -hmm. shot type things, you know, when you see those big T-Rex skulls or the Triceratops or whatever the case may be. And that's the ones that everybody gets attracted to. But wow, when you're considering the history of this little blue marble in space, that's pretty astounding. Pretty significant, yeah. yeah. Just to, that huge bedrock for them to find. What a what a coup for them. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, on a totally different note, we're going to uh, switch gears now completely. Population growth. 
driving economic investment in Atlantic Canada, including here in Newfoundland and Labrador. APEC held its Building Atlantic Canada conference at Munn's Signal Hill campus this morning. The organization says the population rose by almost 2% in Newfoundland and Labrador last year, and similar increases are in the offing this year. St. John's added 5,000 people last year, putting pressure on housing and other infrastructure such as health care. Well, here's an excerpt from Patrick Brannan, APEC's chief researcher. Um, 178,000 people have been added to Atlantic Canada over the last uh, six years. And again, that's driven by the immigration, the population growth, the, the surge in people we had coming in from Ontario uh, after the pandemic. We've also seen a lot of international students coming into Atlantic Canada. And the great thing about this population surge that we're seeing is that it's mostly young people. So the average age is declining across the region. The median age in Newfoundland and Labrador uh, was steady last year for the first time in decades. Uh, and Atlantic Canada's population outpaced uh, national growth for the first time in, in a very long time. So the question, I guess, here is, will this continue? Uh, we do think we're going to have strong growth in population going forward. Uh, immigration especially, we've had a big surge in immigration so far in Newfoundland and Labrador over the first four months of the year. Uh, it was three times the level it was last year, and it's already in the first four months of this year more than the whole of 2021 in terms of immigration. So we've had a big surge in that, and that's going to uh, contribute to population growth this year. The interprovincial flows are slowing from Ontario and other provinces, <clears throat> but still positive. And the number of international students, again, surged during 2022 after the pandemic. We do expect that to slow a little bit. So positive on the immigration front, less so on the other two. Um, so, you know, 2% growth in Newfoundland and Labrador, it's, it's quite uh, possible we'll see close to that again in 2023. Um, <clears throat> the other big driver that we're seeing is, is clean investment, and it is certainly set to rise over the next few years uh, as we move and transition to net zero emissions. Traditional industri industries like the oil sector will be uh, shifting its focus towards more renewable sources. Uh, over the last decade, you see in the blue line the spending on clean investment, and we consider clean investment renewable energy, clean adoption and conversion projects, environmental upgrades, so the conversion of the come-by-chance refinery would be, would be included in, this, uh, in these, these numbers. And we see those numbers uh, rising a little bit in 23 to 25 in our baseline forecast. Most, <clears throat> mostly due to wind projects in Nova Scotia. We excluded the, the Muskrat Falls project there in the red. It was such a large investment. We wanted to kind of pull that out. But back in 2015, 2016, over $4 billion of clean investment was happening in Atlantic Canada. Uh, the green line represents what would happen if we were to see an increase in, in uh, of one, just one wind uh, hydrogen project in Newfoundland and Labrador and one in Nova Scotia. So you see even just if one of those projects in each province were to go ahead, that would have a tremendous impact on uh, clean project investment investment generally in Atlantic Canada. So that is uh, Chief Researcher with the Atlantic Canada Economic Council, P Patrick Brannan. You've heard him on uh, VOCM in the past um, uh, with his presentation to the Building Atlantic Canada APEC conference at Munn Signal Hill campus this morning with some very interesting statistics there about uh, immigration and the like in Newfoundland and Labrador outpacing um, the country nationally when it comes to population growth growth over the last year, 2%, I think he said. Um, just extraordinary. Anyway, um, so we're going to leave you on, a, I guess, a, an up note, <laughs> if you will. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow. Do join us then. Um, thanks for listening, everyone, and have a great and safe evening.